We are returning this morning to our study of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And as I've said, I want to give some history, some context to anchor this book in God's story, his redemptive story. We've seen that the action takes place in the 5th century B.C. So we're in about 445 B.C. The dominant world power of the day is a nation by the name of Persia. And about 100 years prior, the Persian king Cyrus had issued the original decree allowing the Jewish people to return to their homeland after being exiled at the hands of the Babylonians. The decree issued said they could begin the work of rebuilding their city, rebuilding their temple, rebuilding the walls, basically rebuilding what was broken. About a hundred years or so after that, the current king is a man by the name of Artaxerxes. And he had, at some point in the midst of that, stopped the rebuilding process in Jerusalem. So that the work was incomplete, the work was not finished. The city was still in ruins, the people still broken, the walls broken down. And Artaxerxes' cupbearer was a young man by the name of Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah heard about the state of his homeland, the condition of his kin, his brothers and sisters, the people of Jerusalem, the condition of the city, he felt a need, he felt a burden, he felt a sense of urgency. He needed and wanted to do something. He wanted to take action. We have said that one of the prominent themes of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's heart for the people. He is truly a man compelled by love. So he has a burden and a heart for his fellow people, his fellow Jewish people. And he feels this sense of urgency, a need for change. He's moved to action. And his first action, to pray. He spends five months, as we saw in chapter 1, in praying, saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? And this led him to go to the king, Artaxerxes, and ask the one, now recognize in context what this is, to ask the one who had stopped the rebuilding process, to say, can we start it again? And guess what? The king reversed course. The king reversed his policy. He allowed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem, armed him with supplies, provided him with everything he needed, and to work on rebuilding the city and its walls. And in chapter 3, we saw that the work begins. And this is where we left off. And today, we will be looking, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, and then I'm going to read one more verse, very important verse, verse 20, where we say, what happens next? And so, friends, let's pay attention, let's hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he's kind of joined in here. He said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Nehemiah immediately goes to prayer. 
turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Obviously, God moved. God took action. And the people are resuming the work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. And verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. First church I pastored was in an inner suburb of Philadelphia uh, called Yaden, Pennsylvania, right on the border of southwest Philadelphia. I was called to be the pastor right out of seminary, 28 years old. To be honest, way too young, way too cocky. I was in way over my head. The church was planted as a white church in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And so the church didn't really reflect or mirror the community very much. But I accepted the call, and when Evie and I went, it was hoped that we could begin the work on trying to reflect the community a bit more to do a bit of work of earning the trust of the community. We felt called to this work, and we were excited to get going. One of the first areas we began to work on, again, to try to connect with the community and mirror the community, was in the area of worship, to make it a bit more accessible. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the church. Because our church is what you'd call traditional, right? We're a little traditional. We didn't compare to what they, they were. They weren't what you'd call traditional. They were what you would call high church. Okay, high church is big pulpit up front. Choir doesn't come up front. Choir's in the balcony, so you can't see them. They have to be hidden. We didn't use a piano. We used an organ, big organ, and we sang only hymns. There'd be no in Christ alone or Lamb of God or any of that. And so it was high church. So I was, again, 28 years old, not real smart, very naive, and I thought, let's try to become a little bit more accessible to our community. Let's make changes, but not too drastic. 
And so we hired a worship director and had some experience in this area. We were hopeful, and we kind of went through what should we do first. And we said, let's make a very, very small change. And what we did was the worship director would come down from the balcony for one hymn only. One hymn. Still a hymn, not a praise song, but play the piano instead of the organ. And I thought, okay, that's a small change. Not too controversial, right? One hymn at the piano, the other two or three at the organ. We'll go from there. Until I showed up at church the next week and were met by people saying, this church is becoming liberal. We're leaving the church and others ought to too. And I went and said, Evie, what did we get ourselves into? Now here's the point. Anything we attempt in living for the kingdom of God, anything we attempt for the work of God will be met with some sort of opposition. I learned quickly. I didn't think I was making a controversial change, but I faced opposition. We know this in our lives. Whenever you may, it doesn't have to be big, extraordinary things for the work of God. How many times do we say, okay, I'm going to attempt to improve my prayer life, for instance? And you could do anything. I'm going to go to the Georgia game and I'm not tired. I attempt to improve my prayer life, I'm exhausted. I have opposition. I try to do something around the house, I'm not tired at all. I try to read the Bible, pray, study. All of a sudden, I feel all of this tension, all of this, I'm tired, I can't do it. I'm disciplined to hear, and I find myself lazy in other areas. Because no matter what we're doing, if we're doing it for God and part of the work of God, we're trying to live for God, there will be opposition. You will face opposition. If you're trying to live for God in your personal life, you will face opposition from your own flesh, from the world, and yes, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about spiritual warfare from God's enemy and ours, the devil. In chapter 4 here, we see Nehemiah's opposition. And what do we learn? What did Nehemiah learn? There's two things that we see we're going to have to learn in terms of facing the opposition and that is we have to understand reality, and we have to understand ultimate reality. Look with me at verse 1. We are introduced to the opposition. Now, this isn't allegory. These are real human characters. It says, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So, they're beginning the work of the wall. Remember what we learned in chapter 3? 41 different groups in a unified fashion start building this work. And it made this man, Sanballat, and we'll find his friend, Tobiah, they were mad. And they began to mock him. They began to shame them. They began to bully them. Good old-fashioned psychological warfare. Now, we've met Sanballat and Tobiah before. Early on in chapter 2, we read when Sanballat the Horonite, in other words, he's from the city of Horon, Commentators said he might have been previously the governor of Samaria. And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. See, look at this. What were they upset about? They were upset at Nehemiah's heart 
and burden and concern for the welfare of his people. See, there's only two possible agendas that you can have. They were displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Why is that? Because their agenda was for themselves. The only two agendas you can have, and these two agendas cannot be reconciled, is you can either be self-seeking or you can be other-oriented. Remember I said one of the themes of the book of Nehemiah is his tremendous heart for, his tremendous burden for the people. He was interested in their welfare. And this created opposition in those who were only interested in in themselves. We have to ask ourselves, are you concerned about others or are we more concerned about ourselves? Now the first point is we have to understand reality. What's going on? And we have to pull back the curtain some. See, let's ask ourselves the question, why was Jerusalem still in ruins? Why was the city still broken down? See, the people of God have real opponents, real human people, Sanballat and Tobiah. But behind them are real spiritual enemies. This is the part I have to talk about spiritual warfare. See, God has an enemy. His name is Satan. We're introduced to him in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. We're not told all that much about him. He kind of shows up, but we're told he's the most craftiest, sneaky, deceitful of all the creatures God had made. He's God's enemy. And we know if he's God's enemy and we're God's people, you know what else that means? That means he's our enemy. That means we have a real enemy, a very real enemy spiritual enemy who, as Peter described, is prowling around. Even in the current, even as a defeated enemy, as we will see, he is still prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. Do you understand that that reality is real today? That you have a real enemy who is not out for your good. That he's seeking to devour you. See, that means practically we have demonic enemies that hate and oppose us. And Nehemiah runs into real opposition. See, the biblical story, pulling back the curtain a little bit more, the biblical story is that underneath the absolute complete sovereignty of God is that the earth is Satan's territory. When Jesus was approaching his death in John chapter 12, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now Will the ruler of this world, he calls Satan, the ruler of this world, be cast out? Satan is called the ruler of this world, and beginning with the incarnation, Jesus invades Satan's territory. See, this is reality, and we need to understand it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, are we aware of the schemes of our enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us? See, what are his schemes in this passage? Remember chapter 3 in context. Nehemiah is leading a work, a work that depends on the unity of 41 different groups. 41 different groups are identified in Nehemiah chapter 3. And that's how the work of God is moving forward. Now what do you think the schemes of Satan would be to destroy that unity? 
to get in and disunify them. So here you see Sanballat and Tobiah, the human instruments, kind of as the puppets behind Satan's attacks, operating in spiritual warfare in the form of psychological warfare. Because look at verse 2. It says, And Sanballat said, In the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah continues. Look at this. They're acting like typical bullies. And what are they doing? They are making accusations. And you know why they're making accusations? Because that's fundamentally who Satan is. He's an accuser. When we read about the defeat of Satan in Revelation chapter 12, we read now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of, God, of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accused them day and night. We're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Do you know what he is doing right now? He is accusing us. He is accusing the people of God before God, saying, they're not adequate. They're not good enough. They can't do the work. They, they can't per participate in LOPC 2.0. They won't give to the work. They can't rebuild and renovate the facilities. They can't reach the community. That's exactly what's going on here. And look at Nehemiah. What does he do? He immediately goes to prayer. And not any kind of prayer. Because we don't have, normally in the scriptures, what do you see? You see some sort of announcement buildup, don't you? Then Nehemiah turned to the Lord and he prayed. You'd expect that. No, Nehemiah's urgency, Nehemiah's sense of action, Nehemiah's sense of immediacy was something. All you go is right there in verse 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Nehemiah knows he's in a battle. And Nehemiah goes immediately to prayer. Hear, O our God. We're despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads. Friends, this is what's called an imprecatory prayer. And Nehemiah is not being a bully himself. You want to know the difference between a biblical imprecatory prayer and sometimes what we want to do with imprecatory prayer? Here's what I want to do with some of my enemies. God, get them. And you know what my heart is? Personal vengeance. Nehemiah is praying for God's justice. He's praying, God, act. God, move. God, come down. God, do something. But for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your holiness, for the sake of your kingdom, hear, O oh our God, we are doing your work and we are despised. Turn back their taunts on them. Put it on their heads. Give them up to be plundered. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out. This is amazing because we see Nehemiah's urgency. See, his passion is for the glory of God. And obviously, God responds. We don't know exactly what he did, but you read in verse 6, and so they built the wall. They had a mind to work. All we know is they were being attacked. There was opposition. Nehemiah prayed, and the work continues. Obviously, God intervened. And yes, the opposition continues, things get uglier, but we see this same pattern. And then you get really the key statement. And this is what moves us from understanding 
reality to understanding ultimate reality. In verse 10, they're getting tired. They're getting exhausted. I feel like I could ask our task force who's working, are you getting tired yet? Tommy Evans, you're getting tired yet? You guys are working so hard. They said the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble, too much brokenness. Friends, you ever feel like that? There's just too much mourning, crying, death, or pain in the world. There's too much war. When will swords be beaten down into plowshares? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, when will you come? We're exhausted. We're tired. And then what I think is the most important statement here. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the world, the wall. By ourselves, we will not be able to do the work. No amount of passion, no amount of drivenness, no amount of obedience, no amount of strength, no amount of get up and go can get the work done. They can't do it in their own strength. They need ultimate reality. Opposition is still real. We read in verse 20. See, the pattern is going to go on. Opposition, prayer, God intervenes. They continue to work. That is, it continues to this day. That's what we face. But you got Nehemiah rallying the troops, and what does he say to them in verses 19 and 20? He says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Wow. Our God will fight for us. Do you know who our God is? He's a divine warrior. And he fights for you and I. He fights for his people. Now, how does he go about doing that? How does God act as a divine warrior and fight for us? And I didn't print this, but another passage of Scripture that's very fascinating that shows exactly how God will fight for us is Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah was written just a little bit prior to Nehemiah. The same sort of thing, Zechariah is trying to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And in Zechariah chapter 3, we get the curtain pulled back again. Because it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And many commentators seem to think that the angel of the Lord is oftentimes a pre-incarnate Christ. So here's Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And he has to do a work. His work is the work of the high priest. And what's going on as well? Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. There's the enemy again. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. you. Is not this a brand, Joshua, plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. He wasn't qualified yet. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. What is taking place in the heavenlies. Satan is accusing Joshua to the Lord, and the Lord rebukes Satan. Satan says, Joshua is revolting. He is not qualified. He's faithful. He's filthy. He can't do the job. 
And look, in himself, Joshua can't do the job. He is wearing filthy clothes. He is revolting. And so how does Jesus rebuke Satan? How does our God fight for us? Well, because the ultimate reality, the ultimate defeat, is Jesus's, the reality of Jesus' work on the cross. See, Jesus is the ultimate reality. And remember, Nehemiah points to Jesus. See, how does God fight for us? He fights for us through, his, through weakness. Paul put it this way to the book of, in the book of Colossians. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen carefully to this next line. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. In other words, the spiritual enemies, Satan and his demonic forces were armed. You know what they were armed with? True accusations of us. That we're revolting, that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, that we're not qualified. And Jesus on the cross disarmed them, presenting us to God as those reconciled, free from accusation, above reproach. He has removed our filthy garments and put on us the beautiful righteousness of Christ. See, if you look at yourself in who you are yourself, yes, by ourselves we cannot do the work. By ourselves we're revolting. We're not good enough. We don't have what it takes. In yourself, by yourself, that's true. But our God fights for us. You don't have to make yourself beautiful. Jesus did it for you. Jesus has clothed you in his righteousness. He fights for you, replacing your filthy garments with his beautiful righteousness. He frees you to get up and do the work without fear, free, liberated, knowing you can't lose because you're clothed in the beautiful garments of Jesus Christ. Our filthy garments have been replaced with His beautiful righteousness. Friends, do you realize our God fights for us? Do you let Him fight for you, or are you always trying to do it yourself? Are you trying to win the battle by your own ingenuity, your own efforts, your own achievements, your own performance, rather than saying, this burden is too great. Lord, take this burden from me. It's kind of like what Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, let's be clothed. All we have to do is receive it. What did the choir sing? Receive your Savior. All you have to do is receive it. Let's pray.